0: And we're back with our good friend, vaccine researcher, family physician, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. And Dr. Gorfinkel, we learned this week that while backlogs have improved, unfortunately, long waits remain right across the country for elective surgeries. Is this backlog and these challenges, do we know, are they likely to remain because of COVID? Are they likely to remain for some time?
1: It's going to take a long time to catch up, especially with orthopedic surgeries. I'm talking about joint replacements, knees and hips. And, you know, for people who are suffering that, it's a tremendous burden. It's a burden in the workplace. It's a burden on their family and on caregiving. It's, it's unbelievably difficult. So how bad is it? Consider this. Data from KaiHI, the Canadian Institute for Health Information, tells us 40%. Fewer surgeries were done in the past, in the first 18 months of the the pandemic. That's the data we have, four zero. So that's 600,000 fewer surgeries since the beginning of the pandemic. And this is massive. It affected cataract surgery as well. Now cataracts, those ophthalmologists are doing a pretty good job because that's largely outpatient surgery. But when it comes to inpatient surgeries like the joint replacements, it's a serious problem. And why is that? Well, healthcare workers were getting infected with COVID nineteen, and that has placed a serious problem with managing beds. So it's fine for provinces to proudly announce how we have more beds, but we need people to man those beds and to woman those beds. It is unfortunate, but you know that those numbers were really lagging. Mm-hmm. So, it's a big job trying to catch up
0: in those. Well, you know, it's heartbreaking, obviously, for these patients and their families. And COVID, as you and I have discussed, has exposed cracks in our health care system. And while staffing has certainly been a part of this part of this story, also, this backlog, it was in place before COVID. Is this something that we really need to address? It's just uh, wait times, how long we've got to wait for treatment uh, here in Ontario and across the uh, country, that uh, if we face yet another pandemic, we don't find ourselves in a similar situation, a similar backlog.
1: We are not taking advantage of solutions that are existing, that we have the technology for. So imagine, you're my patient, your knee is killing you, you're having a lot of trouble. I know you know you need a knee replacement. So what does Dr. Gorfinkel have to do? Refer to the individual physician. Now, why can't you just tell me, I want to have my surgery done at Hospital X. And then I could refer you instead to the first available orthopedic surgeon in hospital X. Look, Walmart does it. When you stand in line, you got it. You just go to the first one available. And that's not what we're doing with surgeons. It's a serious problem. Instead, Jeff MacArthur, he has to be referred to an individual surgeon. You wait two weeks only to hear that that surgeon is too busy. So can we do better? A thousand percent. We can We are not taking advantage of systems that should be in place to knock that surgical backlog way down and way faster.
0: By the way, uh, here's proof that we've been uh, working together far too long here doing these segments, Dr. Gorfinkel, because I actually did tweak my knee this week. I have no idea how you could <laughs> no. sense it or know that, but I- I'm, long, I'm far, far away from needing a knee replacement, but yes, I did tweak my knee.
1: Okay, it's a serious problem. I mean, one thing, too, that we're not covering physiotherapy and I have to say, you know, you might have your medications covered, but physiotherapy is a huge thing. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, the drug, the, the path of drugs is really to lead to better places in terms of exercises, because ultimately the muscles that surround those joints act as shock absorbers, so that less pressure goes through those joints. So even if a person is headed for uh, joint replacement, let's face it, if you have a great shock-absorbing system around that joint created prior to the surgery, you will have a faster recovery as a result of that.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Sick kids, they are reporting seven cases of acute hepatitis uh, this week that uh, may be part of this somewhat mysterious outbreak that has been detected in children in 20 different countries. Dr. Gorfinkel, are we any closer? I mean, this is obviously uh, very concerning uh, for parents that have been reading about this over the last few weeks. Are we any closer to understanding what's happening, what's going on here?
1: Yeah, so right now in Canada, we're still scratching our heads asking, is this even an uptick over the number of unusual hepatitis cases that we generally see year to year? So, yes, seven cases, but it's still, like, it's pretty rare. So what are the symptoms? Dark urine, pale stool, yellow eyes, that's jaundice, you know, fever, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. Kids can get this, it's true, but it is not common. So one of the theories around why there may be this world uptick has to do with the adenovirus. Now, I'm like looking at this saying, what? The adenovirus, that's a common cold virus. It's ubiquitous. Every kid, essentially 100% of children have at least one form of the 90 types of adenovirus. Every kid gets it by the time they're time. I'm not saying all 90 types, but I'm just saying adenovirus is exceedingly common. But that's one of the theories. Could this unusual hepatitis be caused by this common cold virus? Big question mark. We do not know. Uh, there's about 100 cases in the United States. There's 100 cases identified. That 100 cases, understand. The denominator is th- what? what's the population of the U.S.? I mean, it's what, 350 million? It's like millions and millions of people, 100 cases. You get the gist. This is not something that's it's super common. But the World Health Organization is keeping a close eye on it. It could be a signal. We're not sure just yet.
0: All right. I also want to talk to you this week about sleep and sleep quality because sleep has become more and more of a headline the last few years, just the importance of sleep. And there's a study out that has pinpointed the ideal number of sleep hours that we all need.
1: Oh, this is such a fascinating study. Out of Nature Aging a peer-reviewed top journal in the world. So what do they do? 500,000 people, half a million people taken from the UK biobank, age 38 to 78. And they found that the ideal number of sleep, the ideal number of hours, seven hours, Mm. seven hours, any more or less results in lowered memory consolidation. Lower, you know, higher levels of amyloid. Now, amyloid is a key protein in dementia. Increased levels of toxin, increased amount of inflammation. And they found that people, if people got either too much or too little sleep, they were more likely to be anxious, more likely to have depression, more likely to have a lowered attention span, less memory. And it also seemed this is too much or too little less than 7 hours or more than 7 hours their ability to learn and solve problems was diminished so it it's just incredible yeah Amazingly. really
0: Really, yeah, really interesting.
1: It, sleep. Yeah, it is a fascinating study.
0: Yeah, so are there any tips, anything we can do, anything that you can uh, offer us to make sure that we get a really good quality uh, 7 hours sleep? And, and this is interesting because, you know, I've uh, sometimes even got upwards of nine-hour sleep, and I'm sure there's some people that uh, feel the same. You get up and you actually feel more tired, even though you had nine hours. So if seven is kind of the, the ideal, what can we do, uh, just in our final minute here, what can we do to make sure that we have a quality night's sleep?
1: So there's something called sleep hygiene, worth the time to look up. Basically, same time to bed, and critically, the same time up every single day. Do not underestimate the power of caffeine. Caffeine, the half-life is six hours, meaning that if I have 300 milligrams, hey, by, by the way, that's a tall dark coffee from Starbucks. If I get that thing into my system, I've got one quarter of the 300 milligrams of caffeine still swilling around my brain 12 hours later when I'm ready to go to sleep. So let's not underestimate that. Alcohol. People say, oh, I'm gonna have a drink before I go to bed. Well, guess what? That is a major sleep disruptor. People are far more likely to wake up multiple times. They're not gonna remember it necessarily, but the quality of the sleep matters, and it matters a lot. Because as you've probably learned, 2 plus 2 plus 2, when the sleep is really disrupted like that, it doesn't equal 6. It equals probably 3. You know, so that's a serious problem. Keeping the room cool is also helpful because mm-hmm. people sleep better in cooler temperatures.
0: Absolutely. By the way, I just put my coffee down, so thank you. (laughs) Good advice. (laughs) I appreciate that later tonight uh, when I get to bed in good time and get a good quality uh, rest. Uh, Dr. Gorfinkel, appreciate this as always. We will talk again next week.
1: Many thanks. Always a pleasure.
0: There's Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, and we're back with the news update to the top of the hour next. Stay with us. You're listening to The Jeff MacArthur Show.